So you have to always be thinking, there's got to be hope. We've got to provide hope. And if we can provide hope and thought that there are movements and actions that from the community level up you can take, that's part of that, that creating that hope, I think. The Democracy in Practice series by Club de Madrid gathers the voices of democratic former presidents and prime ministers who leverage their individual and collective leadership experience to strengthen inclusive democratic practice today to better deliver towards the well-being of people around the world. Welcome to Democracy in Practice, a podcast by Club de Madrid in collaboration with El Orden Mundial, the world's most read Spanish online magazine in international affairs. I am Alba Leiva, a staff writer at El Orden Mundial. In this episode, we commemorate the International Day of Democracy, that one that we celebrate in difficult times. These past years, have been seen, have, we have seen democratic regimes come under threat, as well as the rise of simultaneous crises, first with the pandemic, and now with the war in Ukraine. Uh, we are seeing that many countries face food insecurity as well as critical energy and financial problems. And all these topics are going to be discussed in this year's annual policy dialogue of Club de Madrid. And we expect them to be central in the next G20 summit this November. Therefore, we find that this episode is the perfect occasion to discuss the global consequences of this mega crisis, as we have called them. Um, to do so, I am here with Helen Clark, a former Prime Minister of New Zealand, Administrator of the United Nations Development Programme from 2009 to 2017, and member of the Club de Madrid. Uh, welcome, Prime Minister. It is a pleasure to have you here. Thank you. So, uh, given that today is the International Day of Democracy, I think it is right to start discussing the state of democracy these days. Uh, as we have as I have said before, uh, war in Ukraine has started a period of simultaneous crisis that threatened the political stability all over the world. Um, during the pandemic, um, many raised the question of whether Democrats, democracies have better means than autocracies to confront coronavirus. And now I think that this debate uh, is still happening, but with this crisis. So in light of the current events, do you believe that democracies are prepared to survive the instability of raising prices and potential energy shortages? As you say, we're facing this syndemic of issues, so many simultaneous crises, and they're all serious. Uh, we sometimes talk about the three C's, conflict, COVID, uh, and climate uh, crisis. Mm -hmm. uh, and that's before we start on uh, all the setbacks on the Sustainable Development Goal progress, the growth and extreme poverty, the growth and extreme hunger, mm -hmm. uh, before we go near the biodiversity crisis, the state of the oceans, it's, a, it's quite a bleak scene out there. Uh, but immediately, of course, uh, there are these issues consequential on the war in Ukraine and the spillover impacts, very, very serious impacts for poor countries uh, dependent on imports and with uh, Russia and Ukraine between them supplying quite a lot of the world's grain for bread, which is a staple, uh, people face not just uh, unaffordability, but actually starvation at a time when 
uh, in some areas like the Horn of Africa, they're experiencing yet another of these worst ever, ever droughts. I guess uh, we're recording this for an audience, a lot of which is in, in Europe. And one can see that Europe is in for a pretty rough winter. We're looking at the uh, predictions for energy prices, uh, fuel prices for, 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 for vehicles, uh, energy prices for heating the home. It, it's going to be tough. And to come to the point of your question, this is putting a lot of strain on democracies because these kinds of crises, uh, if populations lose their heads, uh, can see the rise of populism, which can take quite dangerous forms. Let's never forget that Nazism came out of the years of impoverishment and chaos of the end of the World War I and the collapse of the Weimar Republic. So we shouldn't take the threat to democracy lightly. We can see uh, just in recent days the election in Sweden, which has seen the far right, sometimes called neo-Nazi party, Mm -hmm. uh, climb to be the largest um, on the, the right of politics. So, yeah, this is a very, very worrying time and calls more uh, for countries to evoke uh, the spirit of being on a war footing to fight these issues, not, not necessarily fight wars, but to fight these issues and call on people's, you know, sense of unity and togetherness. But to do that, governments are going to have to have very inclusive approaches because without support now, we will see uh, poor people, old people, uh, marginalized people uh, get very, very cold to the point of illness and death in, in, in Europe this winter. And that, that would be a terrible thing. You have mentioned about uh, acting, about acting united and governments working towards this, uh, this crisis. Um, this has obviously a, a national and internal realm, but also an international one. And maybe it comes to the point that we have to make uh, certain decisions. So, for example, uh, you have mentioned also not that other countries in not Europe are going to suffer perhaps worse consequences. So, and we are seeing that, for example, Sri Lanka has collapsed already due to the energy and debt crisis. And many other countries like Pakistan face severe similar uh, insecurities. This could lead, uh, as you have mentioned, not only to poverty, but hunger, political instability, conflict. Um, to what extent supporting Ukraine is worth it if that worsens global insecurity? For example, if in Europe we are uh, facing a very cold winter and all the regimes, democratic regimes in other parts of the world are collapsing and facing hunger, uh, how do we add United towards Ukraine? I think the question which democratic Europe faces is the counterfactual. What if you didn't support Ukraine? Yeah. Where do Russia's ambitions stop? because Ukraine uh, was one former uh, Soviet Socialist Republic, but there are many others around the borders of what we know as the Russian Federation today. So that's the problem. Do you let a permanent member of the Security Council get away with invading and occupying another sovereign state with the intention, by the way, of taking it over 
installing a puppet government and not letting it go out of your sphere of influence again. This, of course, is a flagrant violation of international law. Uh, as well as that, we see war crimes, uh, let's face it, by the hundred, if not the thousand, crimes against humanity. We see the risk to nuclear security with the occupation of nuclear power plants. So bleak as it is, democratic Europe cannot afford not to take the stand. It's a little, I think, like the situation uh, the United Kingdom faced in the end with the rise of Nazism. You know, there was appeasement uh, at Munich uh, over the invasion of Czechoslovakia, but the invading powers' ambitions grew and grew and grew. And in the end, horrific as it was, a stand had to be taken. And I think you know, th this is what Europe faces today, that not to take a stand could also have unimaginable consequences. True, and um, we have the history to look at to see those consequences. However, the, I think that there's like a threat, inside threats that you mentioned before, the uh, populism, far-right uh, parties that questioned these uh, democracies and uh, put democracy under threat. But also, uh, I believe that dependency on resources uh, stops democracies from uh, it, it's like a, a problem for promoting democracy uh, so this dependency uh, a democracy cannot refuse to connect with autocratic regimes for example for key resources such as oil or gas uh, however we have seen that europe's dependency on russian gas has proven to be a strategic error now we are facing this uh, backlash from russia and this pressure do you fear that dependency on resources for countries like China or the Gulf states, uh, countries with um, also uh, um, problem, uh, human rights problems uh, inside them, uh, could result in similar backlash? Is the promotion of democracy, of democracy threatened by these states gaining power? I think there's a, a couple of lessons to take out of, of what we're seeing happen. The first is that the energy transition has to be speeded up uh, mm -hmm. to renewable, sustainable energy. And that may not be large grid solutions. It may be small decentralized solutions, and much more reliance on solar, wind power, uh, hydrogen generation. One way or another, uh, Europe has to uh, overcome its addiction to oil and gas. So this should speed it up. Now, in the short term, of course, faced with a a freezing winter, uh, Germany continues with its coal plants and is trying to see if the last nuclear plants will, will um, you know, generate some energy. But this should be accelerating energy transition. That's, that's my first point. The second point is that uh, it is clearly a grave mistake to have over-dependence for import and export trade uh, on any one country. Uh, and those who have basically tied their energy supply to Russia are really feeling it very, very badly now. But, you know, our near neighbour here in New Zealand, Australia, uh, faced quite a backlash from, from China with uh, significant restrictions on 
China's imports from Australia recently. Now, I think all countries should look at the basket of imports and exports they have and resolve to try and spread it more widely, not to be dependent on any one source, which could, for any range of reasons, not become available and leave you in significant trouble. You have mentioned climate change and the need of speeding up uh, renewables and other sources, clean sources. And you've mentioned like countries like Germany are returning to burning coal, which is one of the most harmful uh, sources of energy. In the long run, do you believe that countries will lean to will learn from this experience and invest in renewables, or will get, they get stuck with fossil fuels? Because uh, it is uh, we can understand that this sense of urgency leads to okay, we need to get gas from wherever we can, or we need to uh, burn coal for our population. But uh, are we able to get that uh, past that urgency and look uh, beyond that? I, I think this is a, a pretty bleak year for the climate agenda uh, because uh, there will be a surge in fossil fuel uh, use. Uh, greenhouse gas emissions coming from uh, Europe having to uh, dig deep to try to you know, keep its population warm and its industries going through through this coming uh, winter. Um, but you know Germany did have a plan for getting out of coal. That plan may well have been dependent on Russian gas as a transition fuel. Mm. What that says is that a major country like Germany, which you know, if anybody can find technological solutions, it has to be Germany with its tremendous investment in, in science and, and, and technology. And not only that, it, it's also energy efficiency. It's also the way we, we redesign our homes, our cities, our, our, our businesses, so that, so that we use less energy in, in the first place. So all the plans have to be revised at speed. Otherwise, the chances of meeting even the keeping glo global warming below the two degree threshold become extremely bleak. 1.5 is looking very bleak at the moment. Um, and yet 1.5 would you know, give us a buffer against the worst impacts of what's happening to our, to our climate. But it needs a meticulously planned and speeded up approach to energy transition right now. That. And the second thing that you mentioned was uh, China. And I wouldn't uh, like to leave this uh, podcast without mentioning China, because uh, Russia and Ukraine are not the sole focus of current political tension. Um, however, they are taking the protagonism, right? Uh, do you worry about China's military rise in the Indo-Pacific? And could it be the next geopolitical crisis? I think diplomacy has to work very hard to stop it being the next geopolitical crisis. And here in New Zealand, many of us don't like the term Indo-Pacific because it's been coined as a, a kind of you know, Western alliance term, which immediately raises hackles. So for my part, I prefer to talk more about the Asia-Pacific and then there's the Indian Ocean uh, uh, region where India itself is, is of course a very major power uh, and, and a power with um, you know a, an acknowledged uh, nuclear powers as, as well. 
in the South Pacific, uh, the issue of China and influence is is very much alive, uh, particularly since the Solomon Islands Prime Minister earlier this year signed what was almost a secret deal with China on security, which came as as quite a shock to other countries in the region because while the Solomons has had significant internal security issues uh, going back to when I was prime minister and before, you know, over, over two decades ago, uh, nonetheless, the region has rallied in the past to support the Solomons through those difficulties. So it's very hard to understand why they felt the need to sign an agreement with China to help them with their, their security. Now, interestingly, uh, when the Chinese foreign minister came to the South Pacific and put on the table uh, a rather far-reaching agreement that China would like to have with the island nations of the Pacific Islands Forum, countries didn't buy into the security aspect of that. And of course, because of what has happened in the Solomons, you suddenly see the United States much more interested in the South Pacific, uh, Japan, of course, interested, uh, Europe interested. Um, so the Pacific may well have, you know, funding coming out of its ears because so many are interested now in this region of very small countries, which have a number of, um, of votes at the United Nations. So we have seen a number of things uh, play out. Uh, we also see the way that ASEAN um, works around uh, you know, China as a very dominant force in the region. Uh, and ASEAN plays a, a, a critical role. Yeah, so to be watched, I would say, but what I would be concerned about is if Western diplomacy drives China into a corner with Russia. So far, uh, China has not given full-blooded support to the war in Ukraine. There was a rather unfortunate statement from one of their senior Politburo people visiting Moscow in, mm -hmm. in recent days, but it hasn't been repeated at the senior level where, where it would become uh, truly worrying. Uh, so, you know, engage, engage, and try to, you know, ensure that China remains on board with the world's big agendas around climate and future pandemic action, state of the oceans, wh whatever it is, uh, because we really don't need the level of polarization which would come with driving China fully into Russia's camp. Uh, could it be the belt and uh, one belt, one road initiative, one way to engage uh, with China uh, as part of the West, as part of Europe? Because uh, during your time at the UN Development Programme, you supported this, this strategy. And what do you think of the state of the one belt, one road uh, now? And yeah, could it be a, a way for Western countries to, to approach China and engage with, it, with them? So a couple of points on that. I, I didn't support it, but as okay. administrative UNDP, we recognized that it was happening. And we said, well, if China's going to be putting a lot of money out there, uh, then uh, we should engage to see whether the investments could be compatible uh, with the Sustainable Development Goals and Agenda uh, 2030. So uh, the agreement that, as I recall, we signed was, was around that. How could UNDP support China to make this 
you know, part of the sustainable development agenda. Big ambition and hard to reach, but that that was the reason for engaging. And it it uh, I think is is a good idea for you know Western countries just to sort of keep abreast of of, of Belt and Road, not necessarily, of course. And engage with it as, and they don't need to engage with it as beneficiaries, but be aware because you know Belt and Road has tentacles right into into eastern and central and and southern Europe. It, it's not just something that that saw a flow of resources to continental Africa or Central Asia or the Indian uh, subcontinent. Uh, so it's a significant uh, geopolitical geoeconomic play. Uh, uh, by China. Now, uh, one of the others, of course, was the Asia um, Infrastructure and Investment Bank. Yes. Uh, that that has had, I think, quite a strategic response from a lot of Western countries. Countries like my own, the United Kingdom, actually said, we'd like to be members of this bank. And, of course, if you became a founding member, then you started to be in the governance, uh, the uh, leadership of the bank that was uh, appointed. Uh, it, it, this is this is not quote any ordinary Chinese bank. This has been set up uh, as a regional infrastructure fund, and you know as far as one can see, is operating you know more or less according to you know the sort of principles that a a, a regional or multilateral uh, bank would. Um, the British I know had a, a vice president at at the bank, a former. Member of Parliament, so I think you know rather than saying these things are utterly wrong, so well, hang on, you know there might be a point, and developing countries do welcome extra sources of finance. The one major caveat I'll then put around Belt and Road is that uh, countries have to be very careful how much they borrow and who they borrow it from, uh, because if you cannot repay your loans, if you borrowed for something that actually shouldn't really have been a priority, then you may find yourself in quite a difficult position if things sour in the economy. And Sri Lanka is a classic case of that, it lost control of a major port, for example. And there will be other cases too. Zambia and Africa has been incredibly heavily indebted to China. Uh, so I, my message um, when speaking in my own sub-region, the Pacific, is that if developing countries can't borrow the resources they need from the World Bank uh, or get the credit lines from the IMF or from the Asian uh, Development Bank based in Manila, then maybe they shouldn't be borrowing. And speaking on other forums, because in the end, this uh, um, tools are tools for investment, but also they're like forums of multilateralism and cooperation. Um, we have mentioned in the, I have mentioned in the introduction, the G20 summit uh, that will take place this November. In July, uh, foreign affairs ministers uh, already had a meeting and they solely focused on Ukraine war and ended without an agreement. The Russian invasion like uh, coped the the debate and other matters were left behind, these crises were left behind. Uh, what are your prospects for the following summit? And most importantly, are we living a crisis of multilateralism? I think that the G20 summit is going to be very, very challenging. Indonesia, of course, has invited 
the heads of state of all the member countries to come. So that means President Putin as well as President Biden and everyone else. Um, the foreign minister's meeting, everyone was invited, but then uh, I think uh, there was a boycott of Mr. Lavrov's speech. Uh, so the question is, will Mr. Putin go? If he does, will other leaders go? Will they go but walk out when he speaks? Will he walk out when they speak? I mean, it's going to be a very difficult summer, either because there's no shows or because there's walkouts or, or whatever. And, and that's not good for the world. I remember uh, years ago, Antonio Guterres and I were asked by the Secretary General Ban Ki-moon uh, at an internal UN meeting to talk about you know, what were the prospects for the G20. And we took the view that the worst risk was not that it succeeded and somehow overshadowed the UN. The worst risk was that it somehow failed. Because if you have a grouping of you know, e economies representing 85% of the total global economy, you don't want that grouping to fail. You want it to succeed in, in fiscal and economic uh, coordination and providing the resources for other you know, important developments around the world. So it, it's not going to be easy. I think Indonesia, um, as a chair, will really try to get something out, out of this. You know, Indonesia uh, has been a you know, founder of the non-aligned movement. It, 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 it doesn't consider itself part of a, a Russian orbit, a Chinese orbit, an American orbit, anybody's orbit. It's its, its own orbit, very independent-minded. It will try to bring people together to the best that it can, and people have great respect for Indonesia. So that I think people will want to go, but it will be very, very hard to manage. But that's just a microcosm, really, of the crisis of, of multilateralism, as you say. And the UN really at its wit's end as to what to do when a permanent member of the Security Council invades a neighbour uh, with the intent of taking it over. This is uncharted waters, and the UN has not been able to handle it well. So my next question should be, uh, is the United Nations capable of facing the current world challenges, not only with uh, the invasion of Russia? You have mentioned that uh, uh, this is really critical but um now also with climate change and all the crisis that we have been talking about and if not uh, which changes are needed in your opinion in in the un well clearly uh, the un is, is very weak at the moment very weak when you look at the russia ukraine conflict uh, it the Secretary-General has been able to achieve two things. One was to get uh, quite a number of the civilians who were trapped in Mariupol uh, in the bunker of the major industrial plant out to safety. Secondly, uh, under his auspices, the deal on the export of grain was, was brokered. The UN has also been at the forefront of the humanitarian response. But it's not really visible on trying to resolve the conflict. Um, and, it's, and it's very difficult to get inroads uh, to that. And yet the UN was founded on the, you know, the ashes of, of World War II to try to prevent 
uh, war. And unfortunately, over, well, over well over a decade now, we've seen the number of conflicts in the world rise very sharply. We've seen the number of people forcibly displaced from their homes rise extremely uh, sharply uh, in recent years. The Ukrainian refugee crisis is one of the you know, biggest, quickest ever, ever seen. Uh, more than 1% of the world's population is now forcibly displaced, which is really quite an incredible uh, number. So the UN is left, if you like, sort of with what we call in English the hospital pass, <laughs> trying to deal with the consequences, but not able to have much influence on the course of events. Now, you know, what would need to change? Heaven knows. I mean, there's been attempts to reform the Security Council for years. I think it is clearly time for stepped-up dialogue on that. But while you have, you know, this complete meltdown of relations between Russia uh, and the West, to get any kind of rational discussion on any of this is is going to be very very uh, difficult. The Secretary General has got a process running uh, around a new multilateralism uh, coming out of his our Common Agenda report, which uh, was released uh, in the last couple of years. And we should support that process because it's the only game in town. Uh, but to think that there would be quick and very beneficial outcomes from it, I think, would be a bit over-optimistic. And also, you mentioned about the role of Indonesia of a, as an independent actor, and it, that it is going to try to to have a successful G20 summit. Um, this is the first of uh, three consecutive G20 presidencies presidencies of countries from the south. Um, what are the pros and cons of, of this fact, and how? should it be used to increase the voice of the global south indonesia has an opportunity to to mediate between uh, russia and the west and to try to join all those leaders together but it's a difficult task and also it could be detrimental to your own image how does that work mm. well I, I, it, it clearly is significant that this big summit is three years in a row chaired by uh, emerging market economies uh, the Saudi uh, presidency was not not a strong one because, of course, there were still all the consequences and ripples from the you know, some of the shocking events associated with the Saudi regime, not least the um, the killing and dismemberment of the uh, journalist Khashoggi, which still horrifies us you know, and will forever horrify us what happened. But uh, Indonesia, you know, literally a different kettle of fish, a, a very significant country, um, big population, uh, leader in the non-aligned movement, uh, will try its utmost to bring people together. And it will be interesting to see who Indonesia invites to join the summit. Each chair of the summit has the prerogative to invite other countries to come. So who will they invite to come to represent uh, for example, the least developed uh, countries, of, of which there are um, three uh, in the, well, at least two or three in the Southeast Asian region, but who will they invite from, from Africa and, and so on. Now, next year, it's India. India is clearly a highly significant country. Yes. And um, Indian uh, Foreign Service is, is also very strong, like the Indonesian one. 
So I'm yeah optimistic that India too may be able to move things along. And India has also been proudly non-aligned. India doesn't uh, buy into the East-West fights. It, it makes up its own mind and judgment. So this could be a very important stage for India. Yes, and also India has proven that in the current crisis to stay apart, to adapt to that non-alignment tradition. Correct. And finally, we are reaching the end of today's episode. So I have a final question for you. Um, as former Prime Minister of New Zealand, you faced the construction of the post-Cold War order, uh, which also faced important crises, international, the rise of international terrorism, the invasions of Afghanistan and Iraq, but nonetheless was marked with optimism. And as well, the future seemed brighter than the Cold War. Now, with the climate crisis, which is uh, for me the big crisis that is behind all, all these crises that we are living and that we, not, we must not forget, um, are the reasons? reasons to stay optimistic <laughs> well uh, look look th things are bleak out there very very bleak for many across north and south from high income to low income countries uh, but of course um the, as the old saying goes without hope the people perish so we have to have hope of of better times um i think if we if we look for signs of hope. It is the increasing um, mobilization of people. It's the rise of women. It's the rise of young people and their voices. It's the rise of environmental and social movements. And, you know, if, if governments can't deliver, then, you know, this pressure, I think, is starting to build from, from below uh, with genuine community-based uh, movements. So that's where I would take, take my hope from. I think um, at at the level of governments, the things are very difficult. There's not a not necessarily a lot of bright stars, uh, but we have to keep working to make the processes that we have effective, whether they're our regional processes in the South Pacific or the European Union, uh, African Union, the associations of the Americas, um, and try to you know keep a level of civility and discourse going which will be able to pick up and get better results in, in other times. At the moment, I think, you know, things are not moving the way we want to on, on development indicators, not moving anywhere near the pace they need to on, on climate action. Uh, other big negotiations pretty much stuck. But we have to hang in and keep laying the groundwork for when conditions are better. And, you know, they will get better. It's just a question of having the resilience to, you know, to keep at it till times are more conducive. Thank you for that effort to be optimistic. I believe that, yeah, we have to take hope for the organizations that we are seeing at the local level. And also that when we have a crisis like here, we need to react and maybe the solutions are not um, what we hope for or not as good as we hoped them to be but uh, at least there are something to be at, at least they are um, there, there's something there um, 
Okay, so we have reached the end of the post this podcast. Uh, thank you, Prime Minister Clark, for your participation and insight. Uh, it has been a pleasure to have this conversation with you, and I have learned a lot personally. Muchas gracias. <laughs>